Good morning, church family and friends. Good to see you this morning. Please take your Bibles and open up to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 11 through 18. These are the last verses of the entire book of Galatians. So we are on the final sermon of this sermon series. It has been my joy to preach through the book of Galatians along with Deemer, to preach through the book of Galatians. It's taken us four and a half months to get through Galatians, and I can certainly say that God has providentially put us in this book for this season of our church's life, and it has been a blessing, a blessing to really uh, dig into this great epistle to the Galatians. I remember when, when Heather and I went to the first baby shower that we went to for Noah, when Heather was pregnant with Noah, the first baby shower, we we're opening different gifts, and one of the things we opened was this little book, um, and, and obviously after looking at it, I realized it was a photo album, but on the front of that little photo album, it was a little thing, it said it was a brag book. Okay? I don't know if that's, you know, I had never heard of a brag book before, but I guess the, obviously the purpose of it was to put pictures of your newborn baby in, and you could keep that little photo album with you, and mom could put it in the diaper bag or keep it in the purse or carry it along with you so that you could show people the pictures of your baby, and, and brag about this beautiful child that the Lord had given you. Boast about this baby. And um, now, it's not, it's not necessarily wrong to, to brag about your child, so long as you're giving God all the glory for, for the, the gift of the child. Um, so that was the purpose of this little book, and it kind of reminds me of what we used to have in our wallets, Right? Now, I don't think they do this anymore because everyone keeps their photos on their phone, but used to, your wallet had this little plastic thing in there, and you'd have all these, you'd keep pictures in that little plastic thing. It was, it was infuriating because it would rip. I mean, you'd have the wallet for like two weeks, and that thing would start to rip. And the, but it was the purpose of it was you'd keep pictures in there so that you could, you could brag. Not in an ugly way, but, you know, if someone says, you know, you say, hey, yeah, I'm married. Hey, let me, let me show you a picture of my wife. Let me show you a picture of my kids. One thing, though... Unless I missed something, I never remember anyone ever pulling out their wallet, opening it up to that little plastic photo section, and saying, look at this picture of me. Look at, look at this picture of me. See, see me looking and see the little pouty lips there? Look at that. See that? I never remember a selfie in anyone's wallet. Now, now we keep our photos on our phones, and therefore we are keeping them now on social media where everyone can see them. And I don't know if the social media has produced the narcissistic age or the narcissistic age has produced the social media. But now people boast about themselves. Their brag book is their selfie page. All these little look-at-me pictures. And so it seems like, and maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like our, our use of photography and even our reason for wanting others to look at our pictures has sort of changed over the years. We live in such a self-focused, narcissistic age. Now we're boasting in ourselves. We're boasting in what we look like. We're boasting in what we're doing as opposed to what we used to boast in when we show people pictures. There are two different types of boasting. There is selfie boasting. And there is boasting in the good things that God has given us. Two different types of boasting with these photos. And there are two different types of boasting in today's passage of Scripture. Now, when we talk about boasting, um, the, the word boast here in this passage of Scripture can be, 
can be also translated glory in or revel in or rejoice in, to take pleasure in, to exult in. And so two different types of boasting, two different types of glorying in this passage. You can either have a selfie type of boasting where you're boasting in your flesh. You're boasting in what you can do religiously, ritually, whatever you can do, the rules you can keep. There's a boasting in the self. Or there is an abandoning of the self which leads to boasting only in the cross. There are two different types of boasting going on in today's text. So let's, let's read today's passage and please stand If you would, as we read this passage, Galatians 6, verses 11 through 18. Galatians 6, beginning of verse 11, we'll read right down through the end of the epistle. We stand in the honor of reading God's holy, infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient, and supremely authoritative word. Verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come this morning, and Lord, we want to be people who boast in the cross. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would take root in our hearts. And in order for that to happen, you have to, your Holy Spirit has to do a work. We pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear and grant me a mouth to speak your word accurately. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, Let me bring something up on the screen here. All right, how many of you guys used these in college? Cliff notes. Cliff's notes. Okay? How many, yeah, you use those, right? And, I mean, I admit I did as well. The test is coming up on, on Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet. And it's the night before, and you're thinking, you know, it'd probably be good that I actually read Hamlet. And so instead of actually reading Hamlet that night, you go to the college bookstore and you grab the Cliff's notes. And the, the Cliff's notes were sort of a condensed summary of the whole book so that you could get the main point, you could get the meat. And so it was just a condensed version of the whole thing so you could read it and perhaps go to the test the next day and pass. Well, I kind of feel like Galatians um, chapter 6, verses 11 through 18 are the cliff notes of the book of Galatians. This is a, in this last section, in this conclusion, we have all the meat of this great epistle. We have the, in this last part of the book, a compact and theologically dense summary of the entire epistle. And Paul signals for us that he's at the end of this letter, at the end of this epistle, with his first words in verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you in my own hand. 
Now, why does this signal the end of the letter? Well, uh, it was common in Paul's day when someone like Paul would be writing a letter to someone that he would actually use an amanuensis, and that's just a fancy word for a scribe or a secretary, to write down what he was dictating. But it was also common in Paul's day for at the end of the letter for the person dictating to then take the pen into his own hand and write out the conclusion of the letter, the final greetings and all of that. And why was that? Why did that happen? That was done so the letter could be authenticated. It's much the same thing we do today, right? When we put our signature at the end of a letter that was typed, or maybe a secretary typed out a letter for us, and then you go and you put your own signature on that letter. It authenticates the letter. And this was Paul's custom. We read in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine, it is the way I write. And so why does that matter to us? It matters because Paul was no mere church planter or itinerant preacher or letter-writing theologian. Paul was an apostle, and he had been authorized by Christ Jesus himself. So to see Paul's signature at the end of the letter was to see Christ's own stamp of authority and approval upon what we've just read. Don't forget, Paul spent much of his time in chapters 1 and 2 teaching us that he did not receive his gospel from any man, nor was he taught it by any man, but he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It didn't come from the church in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, with these Judaizers, and you know the problem in the church of Galatia, if you've been here listening to these sermons, these Judaizers had come into the church and were causing problems, telling people they needed to, 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 to be circumcised, they needed to adhere to the Mosaic law. And there are some hints in the Scripture that these Judaizers perhaps were a group that came from Jerusalem. We know in Acts eleven twelve there was a group called the Circumcision Party who opposed Peter's evangelization of, of Cornelius. And then we also know in Acts chapter 15 that those who had gone out into the Gentile churches uh, and were stirring up trouble, had gone out from the Jerusalem church. And then even in this epistle, in Galatians 2.12, we read that um, some men from James had come to Antioch, and, and that it caused Peter to stumble and begin to drift away from the authentic gospel. And so it may be that these Judaizers were saying, Paul, what does he have to do with it? We're from Jerusalem. We're from the mother church. We come from the church, Jerusalem, we have ecclesiological authority. But Paul, he doesn't get his authority from them. He doesn't get his authority from, the, from some sort of ecclesiological body. Matter of fact, he doesn't even get his authority from the other apostles, although his message does not contradict the other apostles. No, his mission and his message came directly from Jesus Christ himself. So... When we think about the authentic gospel, and we see the authentic gospel in today's text, and when we seek the authentic gospel, we do not appeal to any ecclesiological authority, to any denominational authority, to any tradition, to any council, to any creed, to any pope. We appeal to the words penned by Paul himself, which means we appeal to the scriptures alone. Sola Scriptura. 
Might I remind you what Paul himself said earlier in this letter in chapter 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Listen to what he's saying. Even if we, this is future tense, even if we or anyone comes, anyone, any council, any church comes and preaches to you a gospel contrary to the very clear words written right here, let him be accursed. Accursed. And so the hand that closes this epistle with large letters was a hand infallibly guided by the Holy Spirit, unquestionably authorized by the Son. But we must ask, why does Paul draw attention to the large letters here? With what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand? Large letters. Now it could be, some scholars believe that perhaps because of Paul's eye condition, he was having to write in big letters. Others think that because Paul wasn't a professional amanuensis or scribe, that his handwriting was just bigger than the nice, neat cursive of the amanuensis. But most scholars believe, and I agree, that what Paul is doing here is simply drawing attention. He's basically saying, it'd be like us saying, I'm putting this in all caps. I'm underlining this. I'm putting it in bold because I want you to pay attention to what I have to say right now. So Paul wants us to pay attention to what he is saying in this Conclusion, and he's going to give a strong summary of the whole epistle by boiling it down to two different types of boasting. It makes it clear, first of all, that we must not glory, and I'm going to use the word glory instead of boast. It's the same thing. We must not glory or boast in anything we can do in the flesh. The flesh, in Paul's writings, can mean our sinful disposition, or it can mean simply our physical being. Or it can refer to the works we try to do in our own strength, which in reality is just a nuanced extrapolation from the first two. Paul has spent the bulk of this letter destroying the arguments of the legalists who tried to add works to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Works they could do in their own flesh. In the, cases, in the case of the churches in Galatia, the Judaizers were trying to force the churches to add circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic law to the simple faith that Paul had been preaching faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the attempt to add any human merit to what Christ had accomplished on the cross is silly. Matter of fact, it's more than silly. It's spiritually suicidal. And so the first thing I want us to notice this morning about one who glories in the flesh, first I want to notice the motivation. I want to look at the motivation of the flesh. What motivates the flesh? I see the motivation manifested first in verse 12. It's also seen later in verse 13, but Look at verse 12. It is those who want, want, so here's the motivation. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. There it is. The one who puts any hope in any human effort does so because they want to make a good showing. Their motive, in other words, is self-exaltation, self-magnification, self-love. Or we can just call it pride. The verb to make a good showing is only one word in the Greek, and it means to make a good impression, but it carries overtones of insincerity. Hence, the ESV's translation, make a good showing, is, is a good translation. You see, legalism, works done in the flesh, really is all about the show. It's an exhi- exhibition of self. Legalism craves praise, but not praise directed toward God, rather praise directed toward oneself. 
That is why it's idolatrous and it's so damnable. It's a glory robber. And we see the same insidious motive again in the second half of verse 13. So look now down to the second half of verse 13. It says this, they desire to have you circumcised. Why? Here's the motive. That they may boast in your flesh. That they may boast in your flesh. So not only does the idol of self-love want to get attention by putting on a show, it also wants observable results that it can brag about. They desire to have you circumcised. They may boast in your flesh. In other words, they want to boast about all the people they've been able to have go under the knife. This is certainly a play on words here by Paul. Circumcision is the cutting away of the literal flesh of the male foreskin. I don't mean to be crude, but it's almost as if these legalistic imposters were boasting in and bragging about how many scalps they have. It's as if each circumcision was a trophy, another notch in their religious belt. I can hear it now on the floor of the Southern Judaizer Convention. This year we had over 1,000 circumcisions. Praise God. Oh, friends, the same idolatrous self-love so easily entraps all of us if we're not on guard. If we glory in what is outward and observable, if we glory in what can be seen, what can be counted and enumerated, we will end up doing just what the Judaizers did. Friends, the Southern Baptist Convention has for years foolishly focused on numbers and baptism numbers, numbers of decisions, which has led to superficial gospel teaching, or worse, an ear-tickling pseudo-gospel devoid of the offense of the cross. It has led to man-centered gimmicks or guilt-laden tactics designed to compel people to get in the water. And then we wonder why there is no holiness, why there is no zeal, why there is no life transformation, why there is no revival. And then, as if blind to their own fleshly cravings, the denominational leaders get depressed when the numbers go down. If you follow the Southern Baptist Convention last week, you could hear the moans coming from Phoenix. Could it be, friends, that the numbers are down for another reason? Could it be that more and more of the pulpits of the Southern Baptist churches are starting to preach the authentic gospel in all of its glory, in all of its offense, and thus the strong drink of easy believism that has caused our denomination's addiction to numbers is finally starting to dissipate? Let us pray that it is the number of false conversions that is going down, and it's the number of meaningless baptisms that are dropping. Could it be that manipulative altar calls and magic repeat-after-me prayers are being replaced by a genuine call for the people to count the cost, to repent of sin, to cry out for mercy, and to put genuine faith in Jesus Christ alone? Only God knows, but let us pray that the outward is fading because the inward is now being taken seriously. Glory be to God if that be the case, but regardless... Even if that's not the case of what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention, we cannot and we will not boast in what our flesh can do and what our eyes can see and what our minds can calculate. We will not do it. Let us glory solely in the inward work of the cross of Jesus Christ in each individual. 
Let us glory in that alone. And along with the prideful motivation of self-love comes the desire to dictate, enforce our externals or our rules or our morality on others when we are people of the flesh. The idol of self-love always demands followers. So the next thing we see, not only do we see the motivation of the flesh, we see the manipulation of the flesh. Look at verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Because legalists only focus on the externals, they do not rely on the Holy Spirit to move people. They cannot. Instead, they rely on their own ability to compel people or even force people to do what they want them to do. They essentially want to burden you down with their externals. Legalism, as we've seen in this letter, is enslaving, not freeing. And thus it's unloving. It doesn't help others. Legalism can't help others carry their burdens as we were told to do in chapter 6, verse 2. But instead it puts new, unbearable burdens upon others. And mind you, anything you add to the cross, anything, no matter how good it may seem, becomes a burden. There was nothing, I think, that one of the things I should say that's just burned in my mind, sad thing burned in my mind from my experience of living in Ecuador was seeing the way the people down there acted on Holy Week. And you watch men crawling on their knees for miles and then crawling up steps to the Cathedral of San Francisco there in Quito with bloody knees and sometimes even with whips whipping their backs and women wailing on the side of the road. And you didn't see freedom. What did you see? You saw burdens. Heavy, unbearable, deadly burdens. Burdens that were dragging people down into hell. Religious burdens, ritual burdens, rule burdens. Listen to how these things go together. These two things here. The, the manipulation of the flesh and the motivation of the flesh. From Jesus' words in Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Self-love and the manipulation of others go hand in hand. And the manipulation in Galatians to compel others to be circumcised actually exposes another aspect of the motivation of the flesh. For love has, self-love has a twin idol. The love of self has a twin, and its name is the fear of man. The love of self and the fear of man. Look at verse 12 again. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And here it is. Here's that second motive. Only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. The Judaizers didn't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see, the early persecution of the church didn't come primarily from Rome, but from Jerusalem. The Jews violently persecuted the early church, as Paul could testify to. 
And one way for the Jews who claimed to be Christians to make the cross a little less offensive to other Jews was to diminish it by focusing on having Gentiles adhere to the Mosaic law and circumcision. And believe me, Paul, Paul knew that all he had to do to get rid of his persecution, the persecution he was facing, was to add to the cross. Galatians 5, 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. You put a little bit of man's effort in, you put some rules and some rituals and some religion in that people have to do, guess what? You can get rid of the offensive nature of the cross. Paul refuses to remove the offense of the cross by adding to the cross. Oh, friends, it breaks my heart to see so many who name the name of Christ trying to appease the world by removing the offense of the cross. Don't you see how this is connected to the self-love? You see, people love themselves, and they don't want to be thought poorly of by the onlooking world, which is the fear of man, and thus they water down the gospel, making it about a million other things, social justice, therapeutic self-help, whatever it might be, whatever it might be other than a violent, wrath-abating sacrifice. It can't be that. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, by the way, this is Jesus' altar call. Listen to this one. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In his commentary on this passage, Philip Ryken was telling a, a story of his own pastoral experience. And he tells a story of a young lady who came to Christ, and then all of a sudden it dawned on her what it was going to cost her. And she said, if I believed that my friends at the pool were really going to hell, then I would have to tell them about Jesus, wouldn't I? And then she said, but then I wouldn't have any more friends. The cross is offensive. Moralism is not offensive. Telling people that we are rebels against God is offensive. Telling people to simply be good people is not offensive. Calling on men to die to self is offensive. Calling on men to live their best life now is not offensive. Oh, friends, the cross may seem trendy as a silver piece of jewelry hanging around someone's neck, as art hanging on someone's wall, or even as a, a symbol inked into someone's skin. But, friends, the message, if preached rightly, is offensive to the world. Why is it so offensive? It's offensive because it's so exclusive. It's so intolerant. It says that I can only come to God through a crucified Christ. It puts me on the same level with bad people. It exposes the depth of my sin and depravity. It, it kills my self-esteem. It therefore treats my morality like filthy rags. It leaves me helpless with nothing that I can do in my own strength. And thus, it completely tramples upon my human autonomy and tells me to put my hope in the mercy of God. John Stott said that nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. So we've seen the motivation of the flesh. We've seen the manipulation of the flesh. Finally, the misconception of the flesh. What do I mean by this? 
Confidence in the flesh is a strong delusion. Therefore, it's a foolish misconception that leads us to blind, leads us into blind hypocrisy. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. All legalism is ultimately a self-defeating, self-damning misconception. For even the most ardent legalistic adherence to rituals and rules cannot keep every ritual and rule perfectly. And friends, if you depart from grace, you are therefore bound to keep God's law perfectly. Paul here in verse 13 is alluding back to what he said earlier in Galatians 5.3. He said, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And earlier we read the consequences of not keeping the whole law in Galatians 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Romans 2.25 says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of it all. Misplaced hope in the flesh simply breeds hypocrisy, deep hypocrisy. Confidence in the flesh is therefore a deception, a hellish misconception. Ultimately, it diminishes the magnificent justice of God down to a mere scale in the sky whereby we have to do at least one ounce more of good than bad. What insanity, what foolishness, what a delusion. Works are like quicksand. We don't even realize it's killing us. I remember once, um, I've shared this story with some of you guys before, but let me just ask, have anyone in here ever actually been in quicksand? Have you ever fallen into quicksand? Probably not. But on the, on the shores of the Napo River, in the jungles of Ecuador on a mission trip when I was 16, I experienced quicksand. It wasn't a whole lot of fun. Now, it wasn't like the movies to where you're just it's coming up to your neck, you know, and then someone has to dive in and pull you out. No. But you're in this stuff, and, it's, and what it is, you're stuck. And every move you make just gets you more stuck. It's like you're in cement, and it's hardening as you're standing there. And I was stuck in this, this quicksand, and that's what our works are like. Everything we try to do simply makes us more stuck. It makes us more guilty. It's just quicksand. All I could do was simply stand and do nothing. That's what my, my counselor came and said. He said, stop moving, Steve. And he threw a, threw a stick to me or a big limb. I grabbed onto the limb, and he pulled me out. That was my only hope is that another would intervene for me. Confidence in your good works is like deep quicksand. And it will drag you to hell unless you repent. Put all your hope in the cross of Christ. And so now let us look at the cross. Let us look at the glorious cross. Let us glory in the cross this morning. We must glory in everything Christ has done on the cross. Verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Far be it from me. That's a strong phrase translated God forbid in other places in the scripture. He was saying with the utmost clarity that he dare not think about, even think about boasting in anything outside of the cross. Far be it for me to boast except, except, or we could put the word there only. I'm only going to boast in one thing that speaks of the exclusivity of the cross. Paul doesn't say I'm going to boast mostly in the cross. 99% in the cross. And then the sacraments will take up the other 1%. 
No. He says, I'm going to boast only 100%, nothing except the cross. There's only one place to put all of our boasting. If there were any other place to boast, well, then Paul would have possessed it. He would have possessed the, the, the credentials to boast outside of the cross. Dima read for us Philippians 3. But Paul looked at everything that he had accomplished. He looked at all that his flesh had accomplished, even the good things, and saw it all as a steaming pile of dung in comparison to what he had through Jesus Christ, his crucified Lord. So why do we glory only in the cross? Let us notice first by looking at the person of the cross. The person of the cross. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the full title, the stacking up of the titles here is striking. The cross, Yahweh, the God who saves, the Messiah. Paul is boasting in a crucified God. How foolish, how ridiculous, how weak, how pathetic to the onlooking world. The cross was the, was the vilest form of punishment, reserved only for the dregs of society. It wasn't acceptable to even the to, use the, to, to speak the word cross in, in polite Roman company. And it was such a repugnant form of death that it was against the law for any Roman citizen to be sentenced to crucifixion. The cotton patch paraphrase of the Bible, I think, makes the nastiness of the cross perhaps a little bit more relevant to us. Here's how they translate this verse. Paraphrase it. God forbid that I should ever take pride in anything except in the lynching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I glory in the brutal lynching of my God. So much so that we read in Galatians 3 that Paul came into Galatia and his main job was to publicly display, to placard, to billboard his Lord's lynching. It was his only message. But it wasn't his only message only in Galatia. We read in 1 Corinthians 1.23, part of that passage we read earlier. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jew and Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross was utter foolishness, utter stupidity to the Greco-Roman culture. It was a symbol of rejection and weakness. Who would boast in it? Who would openly admit that the one they worshipped died on a cross? One of the earliest artistic renderings of the cross, it actually may be the earliest artistic rendering of the cross, was a graffiti found in a, in a Roman house that dates to the 2nd century. And on that graffiti, there's a cross. And there's a man on the cross, but he doesn't have a head. Instead, his head is replaced by the head of a donkey. And so there's this donkey figure on the cross, and then beside the cross there's a man with his hands up worshiping the figure on the cross. And what this graffiti was, it was a mockery. And beside it it says this. It says, um, Alexamos, which I guess is the person that he's, whoever wrote, did the graffiti is making fun of. It says, Alexamos, Alexamenos worships his God. That was the Greco-Roman view of a God who died on a cross. The cross was folly to the Gentiles. And to the Jews, it was an insurmountable stumbling block. 
For how could David's son, how could the king of Israel, the long-promised Messiah, die, much less die a humiliating and cursed death? For cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. So for Paul to boast in the cross was scandalous on all accounts. But Paul boasted because he knew that because of the cross, death had been undone and sin had been defeated and the veil separating God and man had been torn in two. To the one who has eyes to see and ears to hear, to the one whose heart has been made ready, to the one who has faith, the cross is not vile but victorious. And it is victorious precisely because of who it is who died on that cross, the son of the living God, the second person of the Godhead. It's stunning to meditate upon this, but God took on flesh. Why? So we could have cute baby Jesus Christmas cards and and plays? No, he took on flesh so the flesh could be torn, ripped, so the blood could be spilt. It was God's plan from before time for the son to take on flesh and for him to die the worst form of death so that the father's wrath against sin could be absorbed. And in doing so, God demonstrates his glorious power. The Jews viewed the cross as disgraceful. The Gentiles saw it as idiotic. But because the son, the second person of the Godhead, died on the cross, it is the power of God made manifest. And that's the next thing I want us to see. We see the person of the cross, and we see the power of the cross. Paul sums up the power of the cross in these words in the second half of verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's the power of the cross right there. Notice in this text there's three crucifixions. Okay, The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which brings about the other two crucifixions. Okay, The world is crucified, and then we are crucified. So look at what Paul says. By which the world has been crucified to me. So first, notice that the cross, the power of the cross, breaks sin's insidious hold on us. Colossians 2.14 says that at Calvary, Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, the cross was not a vile tragedy. It was a victorious triumph. Sin has lost its power and its hold. Adherence to the law could never break that hold. It could only exasperate it. That's what chapter 4 was all about. But the grace of God flowing from the cross of Christ shatters the shackles and brings us out from under sin's slavery. Romans 6, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And that's grace purchased at the cross. The power of sin and sin's wages, death, have been broken forever. But we have another problem, namely our own flesh. For not only does sin have a hold on us when we're in an unconverted state. Sin has a hold on us, but we also have an irresistible hunger and hold on sin. So not only was the world crucified to Paul, verse 14, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. So first, in Paul's words, we see the power of the cross because it breaks sin's insidious hold on us. But secondly, you notice that the cross breaks our idolatrous hold on sin. 
Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians 5, 24. We read earlier, a few weeks ago, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And the verb tense there for crucified and in today's text in verse 14 that we just read is in the perfect tense, meaning that it's a past action with ongoing effect. So we can boast in the cross because the cross has transformed us. It's brought us into a new way of living. Sin's hold on us and our hold on sin have been broken. Galatians 2.20. I guess my favorite verse in this entire epistle. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I will not glory in the cross if it is only a moral example of sacrificial love. I will not glory in the cross if it is a mere martyrdom of a political and social revolutionary. I will not glory in the cross that it is merely the tragic death of a religious guru victimized by power-hungry leaders. No, I will glory in the cross because on it, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, freely gave his life for sinners and made a way for me to be saved. I revel in the cross, for only by it is the gulf between God and man bridged. I rejoice in the cross, for only by it is God's just wrath that I deserve satisfied. I bask in the cross, for only by it can my record of sinful debt be fully and finally set aside. I delight in the cross, for only by it can a rebel like me be adopted and brought into the family of God. I marvel in the cross, for only by it can I be justified, declared not guilty before my holy God. I take pleasure in the cross, for only by it am I being sanctified and being made holy as my God is holy. I boast in the cross. For it is nothing of me, it is all of God, and thus in the cross, God gets all the glory, and that gives me great joy, for I will only be fully satisfied when he is fully magnified. So I glory in the cross. I glory in the person of the cross. I glory in the power of the cross. And finally, let us see this last point, the purpose of the cross Verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So there's the purpose. New creation. By the power of the cross, God is recreating what sin destroyed. God's ultimate goal is the new heavens and the new earth where sin will be no more, where there will not be any death, and God's dwelling place will be with man forever. In Colossians 1.20, Paul says that Jesus is reconciling to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Our victorious Lord sits on his throne and says, Behold, I am making all things new. The new creation is guaranteed and ushered in by the cross. And though we do not yet see it fully now, we already have a taste of the new creation, for God has given us new hearts and he has made us new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is why the flesh is of no avail. It cannot make us new. It cannot give us clean hearts. All it can do is condemn. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Nothing we do in the power of our flesh nor anything we avoid in the power of our flesh counts for anything before God. Any manner of putting hope in the flesh is useless. 
Paul has used this phrase before, neither circumcision counts for anything or uncircumcision. He used it before in chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What is the only way that we can have faith and the love, the agape love of our Father is with new hearts, new creation. 1 Corinthians 7, 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now that sounds confusing. Isn't circumcision a commandment? But the type of law keeping that Paul is talking about here is the moral law of God that can only be kept once we've been given a new heart, new creation. The flesh can do nothing. The flesh is concerned only with outward behavior modification, but the cross affects inward heart transformation. And yes, this is what we glory in. We glory in the cross, the person of the cross, our God and Savior Jesus Christ, the power of the cross to free us from the curse of sin and the purpose of the cross to make all things new. And with this wonderful declaration, Paul brings this epistle in for a landing in verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, what rule? The rule of boasting in the cross. A walk enabled by the Spirit of God. This is the same as walking by the Spirit in chapter 5. And what's the blessing upon those who do this? Paul says, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now the whole flow, the whole flow of Paul's epistle here, okay, has been to show us that those who are truly God's people are those who, like Abraham, have faith and who are thus children of Abraham, both Jew and Greek. Faith apart from works. That is the Israel of God. And then in verse 17, from now on let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul is basically saying, leave me alone, you troublemakers. You may have marked your bodies by circumcision and marked others by circumcision. But my body has been physically marked and scarred and branded because I am a slave to the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you want to read more about the physical pain that Paul endured for the sake of the cross, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is not boasting in physical marks. He's boasting in what the cross has cost him. Because he's put all of his hope in the cross, it has cost him greatly. And so now to end this letter to the Galatians, this Magna Carta of Christian freedom, Paul ends it appropriately with a focus on grace. Chapter 6, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Look at the confidence he still has that they're his brothers. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So let me just conclude this morning by challenging you to think about where your boasting is. There are two types of boasting. Just as there's two ways to live, there's two paths to walk, there are two families you can be a part of. There are two types of boasting. Does your boasting look like the narcissistic, selfie boasting that you can go and find on anyone's Facebook page? Or is your boasting a looking away from yourself and placarding, billboarding the cross of Jesus Christ? Here's what I boast in. Where is your boasting this morning? As we come to the table, this is going to be our conclusion, is to come to this table. Let me challenge you. Don't Boast, don't be tempted to boast in this. 
only boast in the cross. This points to the cross. Don't put your hope in your ability to physically drink some grape juice and eat some crackers. Instead, as you drink the juice and taste it, as you bite into the bread and taste it, let it cause your heart to praise God that all of your hope is in Jesus Christ alone and everything he did on the cross, his shed blood, his broken body. Let that be your only hope this morning. Let's pray and then we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. And don't let us, Father, don't let us look with a with a 2,000 year gap at the Judaizers and look down our nose at them and say, what fools. Instead, let us turn our gaze in on our own hearts because we know as we continue to battle the flesh, we have tendencies to put our hope in the flesh. There are some who will feel more spiritual when they do things like the Lord's Supper. That is a tug from the flesh. There are some that are putting their hope that they came to church today. And that's a tug from the flesh. So God, I pray that you'd help us fight the flesh. Lord, I was fighting that this morning. Struggling with whether or not this sermon was put together in the right way. And I was struggling and I was beginning to think it was all about how I did it. And you reminded me, stop putting your hope in your flesh. Put your hope in the message of a crucified Christ. And even as we were singing songs, and I was thinking, oh boy, I wonder if people are really singing this song. It doesn't sound like people know it. It's hard to sing. It was as if the Holy Spirit said, stop putting your hope in the flesh. And listen to the message of what you're singing. And so Lord, keep us from the flesh and turn our hearts to the cross. May it be our only boast as we partake of the table this morning. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.